Star jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. We should be able to hear the magnetic resonance field. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time for a journey into science fiction, science fact, and fantasy in all their forms. I'm your host, Gene Turnbow, and with me is Susan Fox. Hello. This evening we're talking to Rob Soyder. Again? Uh, again. Again. Still. Just, uh, still. Well, you've got the next book in the trilogy. Book uh, three. The Brass Jack trilogy. The final one. Yes. and uh, Or is it? <laughs> See, we don't want to get into one of those, the increasingly ill-named trilogy. Because <laughs> <laughs> after the fifth book of The Hitchhikers. Right. <laughs> well, I'm very honored to be here. Well, tell us about, uh, tell us about the trilogy. First of all, if, if, you, if this is your first time listening to The Event Horizon, you should go back and look at the Krypton Radio Event Horizon page, because you'll find the previous appearance of Rob Soyder on The Event Horizon, where we talked about the first book, in the Brass Jack trilogy. The, the Little Lost Prince. Little Lost Prince. Who wasn't so little and he knew where he was. Yeah. And then the, the <laughs> next book after that was A Fine Bit of Insurrection. And then finally, the last book is called A Dangerous Dance of Empire. What a great title that oh, is. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm, I was fond of all the titles. Um, went through a lot of them. It was I- interesting. Uh, when I first started... Uh, writing it, I just decided, you know, there are all these kind of different elements I wanted to have in one book, which I'd never seen. And so I just started writing, and I knew very, very little about writing. And so I just kept writing until it was time to stop. And uh, I kept going and going, and, and finally at one point, uh, I ran into uh, the people at Hunt Press, and they were nice enough to actually not think that I was a rabid stalker of some sort. And <laughs> I got them to uh, take a look at my book, and they went, ooh, yeah, this is going to require some hard editing because, frankly, uh, my mechanical skills of writing, creative stuff was there, but my mechanical skills of writing needed some work. And then they said, uh, True, that's my nickname. I'm also True Thomas the Storyteller. Uh, how many words is this again? And I said, 276,000. And they looked at me and said, yeah, you've committed trilogy. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Well, I didn't know at the time that your average book was 100,000 words. Mm-hmm. And I grew up, and I'm looking at this wall of books here. I grew up in, a, in, in an age where you had monster books like Dune and 
things like that. Like, that like when, Herbert's Dune, which was like 780 pages or something Yeah, like you that. would just blow right past that 100,000 in no time. Yeah. So, and this is why even back then he had a little trouble selling it. <laughs> yeah, we, we just interviewed uh, Brian Herbert last week, in fact. And, wow. And uh, Kevin Anderson uh, about Dune, uh, Mentats of Dune. And, uh, Brian of which was, more you will hear later. Yeah, Brian was telling us uh, uh, about how his father had written this book and he couldn't get anybody to take it because it was so long. And he, he ended up having to sell it to uh, Chilton. Who up to that point had only done automobile repair manuals? Because <laughs> they were the only ones who'd touch it. <laughs> but there was something about that book that made their editor say, "Hey, we need to publish this," and, and the rest, as they say, is history. Wow. Well, do you want kind of like a, a kind of a brief synopsis? Not yeah, giving let's you do a anything? brief. Okay. Let's do that. Pre-seed. So, uh, bring you up to speed. Little Lost Princeling came out in uh, 2012 uh, uh, near uh, December. And then uh, a fine bit of insurrection came out uh, in August of 2013, and then a dangerous dance of empire just came out last month uh, in 2014. Uh, book one, you got kind of a young imperial in love, uh, a star culture, and he runs into a grumpy old spy on a far, far, far away planet that everybody kind of wants to remain forgotten and away from the empire. And there's a love story, and unfortunately, the grumpy old spy gets dragged into being involved. And uh, because he's involved with the Imperial, unfortunately, that draws Imperial attention, and they come in and they take pretty much most of the local people and force them into the military and fly away. Jack, the hero, Brass Jack, decides he's going to go with his friends to help protect him because he kind of feels responsible for this. What he doesn't know is that the villagers have found a beat-up old starship dug into the side of a mountain, and they decide they're going to go get their people back. Now, mind you, this is not an easy thing because they're at the level of powder and sword, mm -hmm. but they know some people who know a few things. And so that's kind of where we uh, leave book one. And so book they basically, I've read book one, and they basically strapped together this thing, and against <laughs> probability, they've managed to get this heap of junk into space... Well, the thing and is, they is, think they've got a warship, and it's just basic. It's barely glued together. Right. Yeah. Well, and it's partially alien technology to begin with. So, uh, you know, which way is up is a good question on the biscuit. Um, the uh, the next book uh, we we have what's going on with all the people who've been forced into the military, and it's not a pretty scene. Jack is doing everything he can to keep them alive. A bunch of other interesting plot lines are are brought in. And uh, the rescue is planned, but unfortunately, just at the same time that the Empire gets its head handed to it on a plate. Um, and so everybody's kind of running for cover. And we end up with Jack essentially trying to get out of there with the people they rescue, except for um, there's the fact that pretty much the entire Empire is now following them. And now they're going to make the run for home. And then in book three, all the plot lines come thundering home. And mm -hmm. I do mean all the plot lines. There's a lot going on. One of the things I wanted to see in a book was, in one book, was powered armor, mm -hmm. magic, starships, psionics, everything but the kitchen sink. And I know it sounds crazy, you know, high tech, low tech, all this different stuff. You're thinking, okay, this is just going to be you know, the worst of worst pulp fiction. 
So I would say yes, except it's not the worst of worst Pulp Fiction. <laughs> <laughs> Your point? I wouldn't down Pulp Fiction. Yeah, no. Pulp, first of all, I, I have great all, love. It's a classic. I grew up reading Analog and sure. and all the great uh all the great science fiction uh, magazines and stuff like that and there was a time when you had the sweeping space epics um what they call the young adult section of of Heinlein's stuff where you know Starman Jones and Potokane of Mars and and mm -hmm. all this great stuff where you know uh the characters weren't so dark and grim like they are today where you could you know have people that you you liked you know that you wanted to identify with and there was sweep and things weren't quite as you know hardcore either on the technical side or in mm -hmm. the you know well the characters weren't as weren't fundamentally damaged or, or if they cases. were they were going to do it colorfully <laughs> yeah yeah but and it's not like the 40s were you know a cheerful time for living you know yeah <laughs> And, and so, it, so my goal was is to have something that had a lot of sweep, a lot of fun, and brought you into the last book with a lot of, I have no idea how this is going to end. And I, I hope I succeeded with it. People seem to like book three. You know, I've gotten, the, the biggest complaint I've got is, okay, where's the next one? That's a very good question. As you've created, <laughs> you've created a, a, a fully populated universe. Yeah. You know, it's... We've been talking to an awful lot of authors uh, about their, the work that they do on world building and, and uh, story development. And almost to a uh, one, they have said that they spend probably 75% of their time writing doing the world building and establishing the environment for their characters. And then once they have all that, then the, the characters in the situations uh, pretty much write themselves. That's what Brian Herbert said about his father, and that that backstory world building is what enabled him to uh, go forward with uh, with Dune books long after his father was gone. Brian oh yeah, because it was all there. Yeah, Frank Herbert had almost a thousand pages of world world building notes. I don't know if I had a thousand pages of world building notes in my head, um, but I would definitely say I had thirty years in my head of reading science fiction role-playing gaming all this sort of stuff that kind of like bubbled up and so i just liberally stole from everything i could think of and put it all in the blender and hit frappe <laughs> and one of the things that uh like for instance in brass jack uh the there are a lot of different kind of power levels and so i had to really kind of balance that out between you know, the aliens, the Solarian Knights, the uh, Psionics, the Psynites, mm -hmm. uh, the Psylords. Um, you know, what was possible? Why did this group balance out with that group? Whereas, you know, and one of the problems I had that took me actually a fair amount of time to crank down on was starship travel. Because you've got, as if you read science fiction, there are a lot of different ways that we get around. Like, for instance, in Star Wars, it's, you know get it up to speed hit the button and jump into jump into warp mm -hmm. right and then you pop out on the other side well that's one version and then there's the star trek we're going to be in warp for weeks mm -hmm. and so in my universe one of the things i had to figure out was um is this going to be a major thing and it turned out to be a pretty big plot point hmm. you know because the 
the the problem with the Ken drives actually was a pretty serious issue, as people find out. And then the the next question is is so you've got all these different cultures using different ways to get around. Some of them quite insane. <laughs> so that was one of the things that that kind of helped and hindered me as I was writing the novels or novel. So I haven't read book three yet. Uh, can you describe some of these differing ways of travel? Well, I don't want to give away too many of the plot points, but the, the Ken drives are essentially, essentially psionically enhanced star drives. So you have some people have the ability to uh, find a place in space and then they use the starship drives using alien technology to fold that space and throw the ship there. And that is one of the big advantages the Empire has. They can park a, a battle cruiser in orbit above your planet within a few minutes if they choose. And it's almost mm -hmm. impossible for anybody to recover. And that's their big hammer. Now, uh, the people who have that psionic ability, they're uh, part of the nobility and treated very nicely. And they have a room on the ship that is designated nothing but for massages and chocolate. Perfect. That's I want that room, but not the, the essential slavery that goes along with it. Well, actually, no. They're the, the ladies who have this ability are treated pretty well. Yeah, they're, they're, they're very important uh, slaves. <laughs> could, okay. could somebody opt out of doing that? No, um, I don't think so. I don't know. The, the thing is, is the, the whole social pressure of, you know, if you can do this, Lord, we need you. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's probably more of a driver more than, you know, we're going to, because one of the problems with the psionic is it's very hard to force them to do anything because of the fiddly bits in their brains. That if you mess with it at all, it just doesn't seem to go well. Mm -hmm. And um, the T2 drives, uh, T-Space, uh, in my universe, T-Space is much like our oceans. It's just multidimensional and it has tides and currents. And so, for instance, you travel in subspace, throw yourself into T-space in a bubble, and that allows you to move and uh, navigate those currents, and then you pop out on the other end. But if something happens to you in T-space, bye-bye, goodbye, we're not going to see you again. And then there are all sorts of other mm -hmm. mechanisms. There are generation shifts, which actually influence the backstory and all that kind of thing. Yeah, generation shifts uh, would be from the oldest from the youngest civilizations, and they would be the oldest ships in space. Yeah, and that was one of the, the fun things. One of the things I wanted in my novel was the idea that there would be common references to our culture today, it's like Alice in Wonderland and things like that. And so I kind of said, well, how do you do that? And so my MacGuffin, for lack of a better term, is the idea that the Earth, our Earth, is a cultural preserve, and we are just super imaginative and and just popping off with personality, and everybody else in the empire just loves what we do, and they they secretly record everything we do, and it becomes very big out there in the universe, and people record this. Uh, unbeknownst to the people on Earth, there's been five or six cultures that have come and gone, and they've been recording stuff mm -hmm. and passing this on. And so you actually find people in the empire making common cultural references. I mean, not too much to modern day, but... Mm -hmm. Uh, things that you might identify that is part, for instance, one of the ships is named the Wonderland, and the pilot is Alice. Oh, marvelous. Oh, no, I here that. I thought maybe uh, the rest of the Empire falls, and Earth as we know it is actually descended from Lemba. 
That was one of my theories, you anyway. You might not be too far from the point, because there's a lot of stuff going on, as you said, in world world building is, I used one of the common themes that you hear in science, in science fiction of the cedars. Yeah. The idea that humanity was spread across the stars. Now, I have a very specific reason why the cedars did what they did, but I'm not going to spoil that for you. Okay. So, um... I think... I think in real life, we are the Cedars, so we better get our act together and get out there. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. That, that is, uh, that's a concept that's, that's uh, not foreign to, uh, to a, a number of other science fiction novels. There's the uh, uh, John Scalzi's uh, Old Man's War. Right. Um, uh, the humans were the first creatures. Yeah, I mean... We seeded a bunch of worlds before we encountered any alien life. Then when we did encounter alien life, it was extremely hostile. <laughs> uh, mostly because we were hostile. Yeah. Uh, there's. I, I think that's pretty... Uh, I don't think I read a analog or any of the other books that were out for about 15 years where you didn't have some sort of first contact story where things went horribly wrong. <laughs> I remember... Uh, I don't know. First, the one entitled First Contact went surprisingly well. Hmm. I, I remember an one story. story in Analog, and uh, if somebody from the listening audience can help me out, you know, uh, uh, post on the post on the Krypton Radio article anou- that announces the Rob Soyter show uh, that we're doing right now, and tell me if you remember the name of this story and who wrote it. But uh, it was about an alien who uh, a, who arrives mysteriously in some uh, and uh, 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 the person he's visiting finds the the alien in his bathroom uh, on his toilet I think and the first things out of the aliens mouth are be not afeared I am not an enema I am a fiend and he takes his universal translator and slams it against the wall a few times and swears at it <laughs> and he says oh this thing is always doing this wait wait that was oh what was the name of that you know what oddly enough i it was in the first analog i ever read because i bought it in an airport in 1972 you remember it yes i remember it and it was in a men's room at the pentagon and um (laughs) okay you guys are just frightening me now I'll, I'll go dig through some boxes. While you ponder this, I just want to give a quick shout out to uh, my colleagues at Hunt Press. And uh, first of all, Ange, Angela Hunt, uh, our fearless leader, thank you very much for helping me make, make Brass Jack possible. Lorene Hudson, uh, you of the uh, uh, fluffy socks and the more rum, thank you so much for the help with the book. And then, of course, uh, the amazing cat Ellen. My, uh, who's sitting right here with us. Uh, my lovely lady who helped uh, make the covers and did so much editing. I just have to tell you, there was, during the, the making of this book, first of all, a huge education for me and a lot of patience from them. But uh, you know that expression, the long, dark tea time of the soul? Yes. I ran into that. Um, in book three, about two-thirds of the way through, Google Docs decided to corrupt the entire book. Because you had written the whole thing in Google Docs. Yeah. And Remind me not to do that for my book. Well, I, I'm certain there was probably just something unique about me because other people have done it, but we had multiple people in there working on it, correcting it, because um, 
Rob is not the brightest of, of hamsters when it came to mechanics and had a lot to clean up. Backup, 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 backup. <clears throat> well, backup. the problem was is that it wouldn't let me get to the backups. It uh, seemed to retroactively go in and take out random letters throughout the entire document. Yeah, the, normally Google Docs keeps a revision history, but I think once it gets over a certain size, you lose that feature. Yeah, and I was definitely over that size. And so, anyhow, we ended up having to pry the whole thing out, dumping it over to Word, and going through and cleaning it up line by line by line. Oh, my God. And and the worst part was is that sometimes when you break a word apart by taking a letter out, it makes two perfectly valid words that make no sense. That, that still passed the spell checker. Yes, exactly. So, um I, I'm thinking that we, we got pretty much everything, but if there's a little bit of weirdness here and there, trust me, we will diligently clean it up if you point it out to me. But don't let don't let that dissuade you from the book. I think everybody is enjoying it. Um, I gave it to my friend Michael D. McCarty, uh, a fellow storyteller, uh, on a uh, Saturday night, and he had it read by Monday morning. <laughs> Wow, excellent. <laughs> I have to say, uh, um, I while the first uh, while the first book did have uh, did have its, you know, did have its problems, it was a good read. I really enjoyed the story. And uh, we start from, you know, ox cart bogging down in the mud and we wind up in galactic empires. It it goes everywhere. Yeah, that that's pretty much one of the hallmarks of my style of storytelling. Well, that and tuckerizing everybody you know yeah yeah just a just a bit of advice to anybody out there who's writing novels um first of all if you're gonna use your friends as inspiration ask them first you know and tell them um hey bob there's a pretty good chance that as a writer i may need to throw you in the wood chipper as a character i hope you're cool with that and if they're not cool with that don't use bob <laughs> Well, but you see, you know, you, it becomes a a sign of, of the, it's a class thing. It's, you know, ooh, he killed me off really good. Uh, yeah, well, no, it's funny because David Weber kills off the best people. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I see other uh, very popular writers who now put out name calls on Facebook saying, who wants to who wants to be a random character in my books? And thousands of people jump up and say, please, me, me, me. In my case, I didn't really think that uh, my book was ever going to see the light of day, except for the, the grace and, and good uh, patience of the folks at um, Hunt Press. And so I had pretty much everybody, uh, tons of my friends as characters. And what's interesting is, is, you know, I try to capture some of the flavors of their personality. Um, sometimes I, I, I was on the mark. Sometimes I don't know. But the thing is, is as I was writing, it was like, well, I don't want to do that to Bob. Bob's my friend. You're a writer. You must kill Bob. You must, you must right. torture. And this is this is this is why uh, most writers shy away from from doing a, this exact sort of thing. You can use elements from people's well, personalities, you know, but using the whole personality or using the entire person means that you're trying to shoehorn uh, uh, an existing personality into your plot line, and they may not. That character may not then work for the story elements you had in mind for that character. Right. And the, the old joke is with, like, George R.R. R. Martin, um, you know, what's the difference? Uh, why doesn't um, George R.R. R. Martin use, uh, why doesn't he tweet or use Twitter? Because he's already killed off 144 characters. Uh, he, yeah, that's it. And, and in my case, because of the way my imagination works, I already imagine my friends in all these characters. You know, it, it to me when I see Bob or 
my friends Gene or Selene, who are in the books, by the way, some places. Um, yes. I didn't know I was. Yes. Yes, just subtle. It's subtle. But uh, <laughs> Selene's shaking her head. I'm sorry, Sue is not, shaking her head. Her head. <laughs> but, uh, but the thing is, is, you know, for me to see my friends as a vampire hunter or a vampire, you know, depending on the person, <laughs> some of these characters fit really well. <laughs> It's a it's a uh, big place where you threw old Chevys and set them on fire. Is that right? What's that? A vampire. Ow. <laughs> that was that was Gene being smacked by a brand new book. Um, one of the interesting things, though, is because of the circles I travel in, um, in the SCA, in uh, fair, in reenactment, in science fiction, all these different communities I travel in. I know so many people who have so many interesting hobbies and so many quirky, wonderful personalities. It's very hard for me as a storyteller not to love them and want to put them in books because they inspire me. I, I literally, you know, have a cast of thousands surrounding me. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I had a cast of thousands in one of my films when I was in film school. Sam Thousands, he ran the corner deli. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's one of the one of the great things about uh, being in science fiction fandom is that uh, uh, you meet some of the most remarkable people. I mean, the, these are not uh, these are not middle of the road personalities and characters that you meet at these conventions. No, uh, everyone has uh, a remarkable story or a remarkable personality, and uh, uh, they are. So many of them are larger than life to start with. So my my theory is is in the Venn diagram of the social geekdom, um, mm. the center of the Venn diagram of social geekdom is Tandy Leather. <laughs> That's an <laughs> well, interesting okay. theory. Yeah, because think about it. Um, you've got all your uh, people who are doing all their leather good stuff for fair or SCA, right? The people who are building their leather outfits and costumes for Klingon Star Trek. You know, um, you've got all your horse people, you've got uh, all your people who are interested in, um, uh, let's, shall we say, kinky, interesting stuff, mm -hmm. and the Boy Scouts. So why didn't fandom collapse when Tandy got out of the brick, brick and mortar uh, store? I, I think they found other places, but I mean, literally in the same room, yeah. you could see... You know, the uh, the fair person showing leatherwork uh, carving to a person who is a specialist in knots, who is next to a person who is, you know, uh, a mule skinner, you know, and, and looking for, for something for their writing, for jousting next to a person who, you know, uh, just, it was just this really interesting. So my theory is that's one of the Venn diagram spots where everybody overlaps. I think there's more than one nexus, but that's certainly a, an important one. <laughs> For instance, everybody that you seem to scratch seems to have six other uh, hobbies. This person who's in the SCA might also be a pyrotechnician, might actually be into pyrotechnics or be into brewing. Or who, pirate technics. Or, or pirate technics. Um, might be a martial artist, might be a person who's an expert on, you know, civil war. I mean, the it, it's just the most interesting collection of people you ever met. And people make fun of geeks i think that's still kind of a, a trope in in media when we watch tv mm -hmm. the guy downstairs oh, sure. well you know uh, in his basement uh 
Big Bang Theory is geek blackface. Yeah. Really? That's really a great way to put it, too. But the 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 ironic thing is is some of the the most interesting characters I know who have absolutely no problem with women, who have no problem with or whatever gender they're fond of, um, who have no problem, you know, getting up and speaking in front of people or dressing in nice clothes who are interesting. Total, total stone geeks. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, in one of my other hats, working with broadcast technology, I would make some off-the-cuff reference, and then somebody say, "Oh yeah, Green Lantern." <laughs> totally outed yourself, dude. <laughs> and awesome. I, and I think that's a great thing. Well, and we we just saw on uh, uh, on Tumblr just the just this morning, uh, Ming Na uh, from uh, Agents, Agents of, of Shield. Shield. Oh yeah, at a, dressed up at a convention, answering questions, dressed in a Princess Leia outfit, the <laughs> Princess Leia slave outfit. Oh, she can because wear it she's too. She's that much of a geek. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's and that's a wonderful thing, and uh, you know, it's funny because if if the world does come to an end, if we can get past the the lack of uh, Wi-Fi connection, you know, which will be ugly, it won't be pretty. I think really everybody who has a geek in their circles really wants to make good friends with them. Because <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, my know, brother tells me that when civilization falls, he's coming to live with me because I know how to do stuff. Right. <laughs> I said, then you're going to learn stuff, buddy. Yep. He is agreed. We it, we take it we take it for granted, but having these kind of interesting people with these varied lives is really a blessing. And I think that's one of the reasons why when I wrote Brass Jack, I tended to because i was a novice author mm-hmm. i tended to tucker eyes a lot of people because that really just it's, it's kind of a shortcut it really, really yeah, because the totally characters cheating. are already fully formed <laughs> yeah absolutely and i could totally see my friends wearing powered armor or fighting with sword and black powder or what have you well there's your equalizer there's your power equalizer you know you can have all the side skills in the world but you know won't stop a bullet nope <laughs> or a fist <laughs> Well, they can, but just better not have a headache that day. Um, well, enough enough guys <laughs> with fists, and it, one will get through. So now I'm uh, getting ready to move on to uh, some other projects I've been working on. Like what? Ooh, um, nice. Anything you can tell us? Yep. Uh, I'm working on a series called uh, The Magic Came Back. Ooh, I like the title. And... The the thing I, I would like to say is uh, I will ask people before I tuckerize them. Um, but. But <laughs> I have some friends who just are going to fit in really, really well. And I think the, the great thing about the magic uh, came back is it's set in the modern day, mostly. And it's kind of going to be along the, the urban fantasy lines. I'm a huge, huge fan of uh, Jim Butcher. Mm-hmm. The Harry Dresden series. Oh, I love that. Um, the uh, Mercy Thompson uh, series. Um, the Iron Druid series. Uh, there's there's a lot of great urban fantasy. October Day. Read yeah. those. There's and a new one coming out this year. I didn't realize it until I was looking on Sean and McGuire's uh, Amazon page. So I've, I've pre-ordered that. <laughs> there's the uh, Dies the Fire series, mm-hmm. which uh, I really love the immediacy of the first two or three books. Yeah. Uh, okay, everything's gone to hell in a handbasket. What do you do now? 
And so I think that's going to be kind of one of the, if I can, if I can even pick up a little of that great tension, mm-hmm. that would be a wonderful thing. We can weave our own hand basket. Yes. Well, the, I think the thing that we learned in Dies the Fire, the person who's running to the agricultural museum and running off with uh, all the uh, farm equipment is really the smartest person in the room. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, look, so, I can feed myself. Woo! Hey, give me a sheep. I'm good, man. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by sheep. <laughs> From warm willings to loving companionship, trust sheep to make your lives better. <laughs> You know, Jane, you scare me. <laughs> we could start with all the Scotsman sheep jokes, but I, oh, yeah. I don't even think yeah. we need There'll to. There'll never be another you. <laughs> sheep lie. That was a sheep shot. Oh, oh you kid. <laughs> what are you complaining about? I wasn't doing mutton. Would you hit him again, please? <laughs> Thank you. So, uh, does anybody have any questions for me uh, uh, from off the internet or any other questions about Brass Jack before we... Well, I have a... Where'd Jack get all his brass? I've got a question. What important things have you learned from writing uh, the Brass Jack trilogy and the, the experience that you went through after finishing it and, and finding that it had to be turned into three separate books <clears throat> that you think is... What's, what's the biggest thing that you learned? I Don't think, piss on the editor. Right. Besides well, that. Okay. The, Don't piss off or on the editor. The, I think probably the biggest thing I realized was don't let the mechanics get, don't let your inability to understand the mechanics stop you from writing. That being said, if you're going to be a real writer, you got to step up and you got to learn the mechanics. And one of the biggest things that I learned in the process was all my life, I've been a voracious reader. When I was a, a kid, I could polish off three paperbacks a night. Wow. I mean, I was just a See, voracious it's not just me. reader. Yeah, Susan reads as fast as you do. I, I'll get through a book in a night if I push it and I stay up till two in the morning, but I cannot read at that speed. Well, I can't read at that speed anymore unless it's really bad. But the, <laughs> but the thing I would say is the, the problem with that was I never, ever looked at the mechanics of how it was written, breaking out the dialogue, you know, where the spaces mm-hmm. go, where the commas go, you know, understanding chapter and story texture and the, the, the actual mechanics and the beauty of that. And that's something that I've, you know, at gunpoint had to learn. Not, not that anybody was going to actually shoot me, but, they, you know, it's amazing what very sad looks and sighs will do for your guilt. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Really? You really did that? Yeah. Really? Thanks, Mom. Yeah. And, uh, you know, part of that I I have to give myself a little slack for because I had, you know, challenges when I was growing up, foster homes, group homes, all that fun Mm -hmm. stuff. But when your fifth grader is correcting your stuff, that's there's a low point in your life. Yeah. And so what I hopefully will do in my writing in the future is I will continue to learn about the mistakes I'm making and correct them. And I will learn how to take that part of the art and excel at it and become the kind of writer who I don't want to be, you know, the Shakespeare. I want to be the person that people go, ah, that book is in. 
I now have my weekend plans. I want to be that kind of writer. Very well said. Yeah, very well said. When the, when your new book came in, um, I was still reading Mentats of Dune. <laughs> and it, so I kind of interrupted that to read your book and then went back to Dune for a while. And I was struck by the similarities and the differences because there was, you know, okay, an this... empire in an interstellar empire in flux. There were different methods of getting from one place to another. There was politics. There was psionic powers. And yet, which universe would you rather live in? Oh, um, well, one very critical question. If it was my universe, are the Organi or the next thing? The Organi were in this book, so they were there. Right. I don't think I would want to live in that universe if things did not go well, because there wasn't going to be anything left. Well, we'll, we'll we don't know yet, do we? <laughs> but the... Um, I have to say, I read Dune at least a, a couple of dozen times, and uh, sometimes when you're reading books, it, it also is about context and where you read them. Mm -hmm. And so, for instance, I read Dune while I was working in Saudi Arabia. Hmm. So you really had it. Well, you, you, uh, you were sort of really in the sandbox right there. It was interesting because there I am reading Dune and... I, on Arrakis, essentially. Right, on Arrakis. And, and literally, I walked outside, and there was a shamal happening, a, uh, a <laughs> desert storm. And when a shamal happens, it's a world of brown. You literally have no perception except for down. That is the only perception. And you found yourself walking irregularly, so you wouldn't attract <laughs> I don't want to attract a war. The spice <laughs> must flow. Or in the case of Saudi Arabia, the oil must flow. Well, same difference, you know. Kind yeah, of. pretty yeah. much. The transportation uh, uh, millions. And, and I was joking with uh, Sue earlier, you know, about still suits. If if the Scrats, who are essentially the Celts mm -hmm. in 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 my, or a Celtic colony on, on my world, had still suits, it would be a still suit that involved mash and uh, <laughs> fermented alcohol. <laughs> when you were in Iraq, do you think uh, still suits would have done? Do you think a uh, 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 Dune style st still suit would have been a practical thing? On 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 Lampob? No. no, no, in Iraq or, or Saudi in Arabia. Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia. Yeah, absolutely. Would have made sense, absolutely. The only problem is, is that there's a problem in the fact that evaporation is part of the cooling mechanism. So if you don't have water actually going away from the body, taking, uh, allowing the heat to dissipate. Mm -hmm. So obviously, in the still suit mechanism, there must have been some other way they dealt with the, the human body heat. I don't know. I mean, obviously, hey, it's science. Look, <laughs> magic. Mm -hmm. But that being said, yeah, I still suit would have to wick the uh, the moisture away from the body and take the heat with it. Yep. And yeah, but would, it has to be, go somewhere. The right? heat has to go somewhere. And the other thing to just to go off on this still suit thing in Saudi Arabia, most of the even the freshwater is highly saline. And so, for instance, when you got into the freshwater pool, you had to wash yourself off with even fresher water because the water had so much salt in it. I didn't realize that. Yeah, and I was trying to learn how to dive in that pool, and at that point, I, uh, I was. <laughs> you put on a pair of tanks, you float like a cork. <laughs> you cannot, mm. you cannot get down to the bottom of the pool. So it, it, where you are when you read certain things sometimes really makes a big impression on you. I read The Stand while I was in uh, uh, in a place called 
Essen, Germany, which was kind of the New Jersey of Germany. And we're talking everything is gray and cubist and monochromatic. And it was toward the end of winter. And boy, you read the stand there and you, you walk away going, humanity, any, please. That's Captain Trips. I don't want to have anything to do with him. <laughs> I'm not going to hang around you when you're reading like, like Dante's Inferno. Okay. I'm not. I'm not going with you. Uh, that's it. That's one of the problems with having a very, very, very active imagination. Is is there's no time that it isn't operating in the background. Well, yeah, but you you were bringing it in the foreground. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that's one of the reasons why I can't sleep on planes, for instance, yes, because okay. I'm going to look out there on the wing, and there's going to be that little guy munching on the wing of the plane. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's gonna you know there's going to be snakes. And there's John Lithgow is going to say, you know, that happened to me once. <laughs> Uh, I think that also comes part and parcel with being a, a storyteller. That's one of my other occupations is mm -hmm. I'm a professional storyteller. You've, you've had uh, decades of experience with that. Yeah, I have. I've been a storyteller for about uh, 25, 30 years, something like that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> hey, what? As I, I, the, the viewing audience, listening audience can't tell, but I've, I've grown a, an impressive handlebar mustache as part of my uh, proto clause, <laughs> proto clause <laughs> disguise, uh, and, and it's funny because that's the first thing kids key on now when I'm out out storytelling, doing traditional storytelling. Now is that that's the first thing. Cool mustache, and which I find yeah. ironic because everywhere you look, there are mustache mugs and mustache because the hipsters have suddenly decided facial hair is cool. Writing long form like this, uh, there. I have to believe that there's a correlation between that and uh, and myth and legend and storytelling. Absolutely. Um, one of the things that I did in Brass Jack is there are a bunch of legends and things like that that are subtly woven into the background. And I've studied Celtic myth and folklore for quite some time. I was the Art Olaf of the Queen Maeve encampment which was one of the best first century uh, reenactment groups out here in Southern California of early Celtic. And so there are things that are just kind of subtly pointed to in the background and some words and lines and phrases that if you were somebody who studied that sort of thing, you would recognize them. Uh, some of the songs and folk music that's mentioned in the novels also tracks back to that. All the different cultures on Lembob most of them come from warrior cultures uh, of early earth. And so you have the equivalent of the Vikings slash Mongols. You have the Celts. You have other cultures. You don't see much of that, but they're all there. there are a lot of them there. And when I wrote the book, one of the things I kind of wanted to stay away from was the tie it up with a bow. I wanted mm -hmm. people to kind of feel like, this is an ongoing story. It will continue being an ongoing story. These characters don't go away. They continue to go on and have adventures. And it's it not it's not because I, I, I'm necessarily putting a plot hook out there. Oh, here's the next book. But simply, in my mind, everybody I know, they never finish their adventure. They just finish a chapter in their adventure. You know, that was a part of my life. And now the next part comes. You know, and that's the way I felt about it. And 
all the myth and folklore I've been studying for all these years, all the, the Hoja Nazardine stories, all the trickster stories, all the hero stories, the sagas, uh, the Toimbo Cunha uh, in, the, in the Celtic tradition, all these kind of things, they have this wonderful freedom. You know, you look at Thor, and I, I know I said this in the last time, you know, if you look at the Avengers, that's your basic storyteller six-pack. You know, you have, uh, let's see, we have our wizard with magical armor. We have our wizard possessed by a powerful demon. We have our archer with magical arrows. We have a paladin who's drunk a magical potion and has a magical shield. We have, uh, let's see. Name Thor. Oh, and of course, not not too much of a stretch there. The <laughs> Norse god of thunder and lightning, uh, Thor, not Thor, but Thor. I'm so Thor, I can and, hardly. Never mind. <laughs> and then, of course, a redhead. Well, it hurts. <laughs> redhead. There's always a redhead. Yeah, but I mean that's your basic story uh, storyteller six pack. Mm -hmm. And you, I think people are crying out for myth. I think people are crying out for folk tales, myth, and legends. We live in a world now where we get in our cars and we go to work and we see the same people and we turn around and we get in our cars and we come home and we don't share stories around the fire like we used to. And the great thing about storytellers is the storyteller knew you. He made it relevant to you when he told stories. It gave you a chance to actively imagine. And if I, just a quick example, imagine a dragon that uh, just from the tiny bit of light that's flickering around the, the treasure hoard, what color is its eyes? Golden. Okay. Jean, you can just barely see the flames out of that long crocodilian snout. What color are those flames? Green. Uh, Miss, Miss Cat, you can just make out from the light off the battered shields and swords, what color is that dragon? Metallic black. Now, what color was your dragon, Jean? I had pictured uh, copper or bronze. And what color was yours? I had a green dragon. See, that's the power of storytelling and the fact that when we create these thought structures in our minds, they are made out of the things that we bring to them. When we talk about a hideous old woman, she's Mrs. McCurdy from the second grade. She, we construct this stuff. And so when I tell a story about a dragon, everybody leaves with a dragon and it's their dragon. And so it means something to them. This is in deep contrast to how a lot of the students of myth and legend work with this material. Uh, a lot of them, uh, they study the books. <laughs> they study the books. They study, the, uh, they study what other scholars have said about the myth and legend, but it doesn't live for them. It must be this way in these words, and no other words or variations are allowed, mm -hmm. or, or they, unless they're they, documented. Uh, they, they think about them in certain ways, and they don't really, uh, they don't really examine what role myth and legend plays in in society, or what it played in society then, as contrasted to now. Uh, they have a very different view of things, and that's what. Yeah, but then they go back it's and very sterile. The, but they go back and watch TV and read their comic books, and and you know they they can write all day on the ancient trickster myths, and then not remember that Bugs Bunny and Deadpool. <laughs> Yeah. Are, are the modern uh, versions. But, but two things I want to point out. First of all, for instance, with a written word, again, you have that beautiful freedom of what you thought that character looked like, what you think this world looks like. And 
we have kind of lost that in some you know, if you read Game of Thrones and you watch Game of Thrones, there are definitely going to be some discordancies between what you what you read and what you what you see. And one of the beautiful things about and sorry, got to plug you guys, Krypton Radio, is Krypton Radio is a place where you can sit and listen to intelligent people talk about intelligent, you know, goofy things, and allow your mind to expand, give yourself the freedom of of sharing. Uh, the viewpoints that in our day-to-day lives is very hard to come by. And so when you guys asked me not once, not twice, but three times to come back and talk about Brass Jack and storytelling and everything, I was truly honored. Well, it's an honor to have you with us. Well, you know, frequently we'll say, oh, come back anytime. Do they? Eh. <laughs> no, we really meant it. <laughs> Jody Lynn and I were talking to you. <laughs> So, uh, as far as storytelling, I would recommend that anybody who wants to be a writer or a creator of any content that has a beginning, middle, and end, antagonist, protagonist, plot, struggle, goal, resolution, all those kind of elements that make up a story, that's great. But first learn to tell a story to a kid. First learn to tell a story to, your, to somebody you don't know all that well. Learn how learn the art of verbal storytelling, because that will give you a tool that will that you will be able to use a million times, and it will reap you vast rewards. One of the problems we run into, and we see it all the time, is we see shows that die, or we see um, programs or books that just kind of lie flat, and that's because they never sat down and told the story, not in a way that that was evocative. Everybody loves Joss Whedon. Have you listened to Joss Whedon? He's a great storyteller, you know, and we run into, there are certain characters in our, our media verse who if just, you would, you would happily sit there and, and talk with them for hours because they are great storytellers. Uh, again, throwing the name Jim Butcher out there, the Harry Dresden files. I had a chance to hear him at WeirdCon, which by the way, I will be uh, teaching and performing at uh, Memorial Day weekend. 2014 at uh, down by the uh, down by LAX. You can check him out on the web. Uh, Jim Butcher uh, taught last year, and I was amazed. This was not your. Hi, I'm a dried in the wool science fiction geek. Quiet, don't know how to express myself. This was a guy who I would happily invite up on a stage to perform it's next not to me. Easy being green. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Jim Jim was just one of these people who was an eloquent communicator, no matter what modality he was using. I think I've read some of his books, actually. Yeah. He's, and I think you guys have talked to a lot of the different people in the geekosphere who you put them in front of a microphone and all of a sudden these worlds start to come out. You're like, wow. <laughs> the best interviews are where we don't have to do any of the work. <laughs> Brank, uh, Frank and Brian Herbert. Oh my God! Just, just switch them on and let them go. Oh yeah. Lord love them. Yeah. They were they were great. And if you look at the people who don't resonate, chances are you're not asking them about the right stories. Maybe so. I mean, there's. It's not like every writer's an extrovert after all. Oh no. Some of them are wonderful storytellers. Right, and everybody has their medium. Some people tell stories in music and. Some people in dance and what have you, but well, and and you say you know it's writing is a verbal medium, but it's not always a vocal one. I would say 
look at Shakespeare. Look at Mark Twain. Well, those those were also vocal individuals from right, from all but reports. I mean, if you want to talk about the kind of people who change civilizations, the people who understand the power of the spoken word of storytelling, Jesus Christ, Mark Twain, Lincoln, Buddha, all these guys, all these people had the ability of not only being eloquent writers, but being able to communicate next to a person telling a story. And yet a lot of poets are very quiet. Um, well, I don't think you necessarily need to be jumping about on stage. But, I mean, if you look at Oscar Wilde, you know, he wasn't a shrinking violet. <laughs> well, I'm thinking, I'm thinking more, you know, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, you know. Ooh, yeah. Okay? You know, your Jane Austens who were, you know. That's a good point. That's a good point. Is it, is it gender-based? No, not necessarily. Those just happen to be the ones I thought of. Right. But I'll bet you, and I, I would say that a, a common trend, if the person is, is somebody you can sit down and just listen to talking, have one of those conversations that just goes on forever, is it that time already? I really must be going. <laughs> if, if, if they have that hallmark, chances are they're going to be pretty damn good at what they do. I could I could go on with you just maybe sit down and try to riffle through the cards in my card files in my head, going. Then there's people who are extroverts and talk about their stuff forever and ever, and they can't tell a story to save their lives, and they're dreadful, dreadful writers. Yeah, I know at least. Uh, and we're not naming names here, so yeah, I, not not gonna. Wouldn't yeah. be prudent. Yeah, I I know a couple people like that, uh, but uh, I'll tell you in my own. Uh, my own efforts to get my head squared away on our new uh, uh, space opera, Halfway Home. It's uh, I'm tapping into... Uh, You're Tuckerizing, too. You're tapping into... <laughs> bit, yeah, I am, actually. I'm Tuckerizing as well. Ask, Except, just ask him first. Is it okay if I can throw you in the wood chipper? He did. Yeah, okay, I, he I did. did. <laughs> Nobody's been chipped yet. I think that should be one of... Got, we've actually got one... Uh, uh, and one only one person's lady. out the airlock in his underwear, but... You know how they, they, they have, like, Murphy's Law? You know, oh, yeah. uh, the worst part. So I have a couple of what I call Rob's Laws, you know, because everybody should be allowed to make a few laws. That's, that's sure, kind of, of course. Right. It's Cole's Law, right. which is thinly sliced cabbage and dressing. Oh. <laughs> Ow! <laughs> so uh, one of Rob's Laws, the, uh, the pen will be further away from the phone, depending on how important the message is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, that's one of Rob's Laws. Uh, God never closes a, a door, but he throws you out a window. <laughs> I yeah, like that variation. That, that's another one. If I were going to have a writing law, ask your friend first before you put him in your novel. Ask this is him, about the third time you've said that tonight. Yes. It must be important. Yes, ask him first. Uh, Bob, is it okay if I put you in my novel and I'm going to throw you in a wood chipper? I think that... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Sorry, I've, Bob. I've got a few favorites, you, too. Uh, any piece of stock cut to length will be too short. Uh that's a good uh, one. Yeah. Um, well, Lewis McMaster Bouchard has always said, you know, figure out the worst possible thing that can happen to your favorite character and then do it. Ooh. <laughs> that's what makes them grow and makes an interesting story. Oh, yeah. Um, I've it, thought of some perfectly horrible things to do to her characters, and I for, probably shouldn't even mention them. <laughs> the, the two rules, if you're a technical person, it's always a crappy cable. That's 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 oh, yeah. it's always a crappy cable. And if you're if you do tech support ever, remember these lines: go from known source. And would you try it once more, just for me? <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, that, and that's often the magic the the magic ticket. See, uh, listen to Krypton Radio. Not it only will we tell you, you about books, in. we'll tell you about mustache conditioners and <laughs> all the wisdom of the world that you ever wanted to know. I got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've broadened our horizons plenty for one evening. The the three titles of the books in the Brass Jack series are. The first one is Little, Little Lost, Lost Princeling. Princeling. The second one is A Fine Bit of Insurrection. You always got to say that with a Celtic accent. Mm -hmm. And then the third one is A Dangerous Dance of Empire. You can find them uh, as a Kindle ebook on Amazon. And you can also look up Hunt Press. They've got many wonderful books and authors there. You can buy it as a hard copy, both on Amazon and, and at lulu.com. And hopefully we'll have a link up somewhere on uh, the Krypton Radio website. And I just want to say thanks again to everyone so much for the help of uh, getting my novels done and out there. And I, if anybody has any questions about the Brass Jack universe or anything like that, I would be very glad to help. Thank you guys so much. And thank you for being with us this evening. You have just heard episode 60 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for May 10th, 2014, with our guest Robert Soyder, author of the Brass Jack Trilogy. Your hosts have been station manager Gene Turnbow and the station's executive producer Susan Fox. This episode will air again on Sunday, May 11th, 2014 at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, and again on Sunday, May 15th at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern. You'll be able to find this episode and others as downloads at the Krypton Radio website and on iTunes and Stitcher as podcasts. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was science fiction illustrator Mark Schurmeister. The engineer was Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was Corsair's closet producer Christine Cherry. And the captain was voiced by legendary science fiction writer Larry Niven. This program and its contents are copyright 2014 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. The Event Horizon. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi. <laughs> <laughs>